If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's full of actual real people trading in swag. It's heaving with camels and elephants and dogs and musicians. And it's just an extraordinary kind of circus of all of humanity. That was Simon Sharma describing one of the works of art to appear in the BBC's major new series, Civilizations. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today, the 1st of March, sees the beginning of Civilizations a nine-part BBC series which explores several millennia of global culture. It is a reimagining of Kenneth Clarke's landmark 1969 BBC series, Civilization, but this time with three presenters, Simon Sharma, Mary Beard and David Olajoga. In our March issue, we've published a piece containing interviews with all three historians. And for today's episode of the podcast, you'll hear some excerpts from my conversation with Simon Sharma, who presents five of the nine episodes. The interview took place in a cafe in West London, so I do apologise at the outset for the background activity. My first question to Simon was how far he'd been influenced by Kenneth Clarke in making the new series. Very interestingly, I did think it was, I still do think it's kind of masterpiece in its way. You know, it presents a very coherent, if slightly limited, narrative, but... Actually, I would want to withdraw the word limited because when you're going from, I don't know, a stained glass in a medieval cathedral all the way through to Delacroix or something, you're not that limited. But it is obviously not. The reason we did this was to do the rest of the world's art and not treat it as the rest of the world, that the West versus the rest. But technically... I, did, I didn't look at all of them, but I looked at a healthy number, and I was, you know, blown away all over again. Partly 
the technique was so brave for its time. It was famously David Attenborough's idea for, as a stupendous way to use, proper way to use colour television, which was very new, which was otherwise used for trooping of the colour and football games and so on. Um, but that actually got Michael Gill, the producer, to think very hard about actually what we now think of as slow television. So they're astonishing. I don't know if you've looked at it again. I think a lot of people haven't stopped looking at it, but they're probably people of my age and older. But there are amazing moments where nothing is happening except the camera is drinking in some fresco um, and beautiful music is playing. And, and actually that has an astonishingly constructive effect on your attentiveness, really. I thought that was very beautiful. His script has all the kind of cohesion of one person's opinions. Um, but one always forgets, you know, in the kind of jokes about Lord Clark of Civilization, what a great writer he was. I mean, I read him a lot, quite aside from this, when I was a kid. I loved the book on the Gothic Revival, for example. He wrote for regular folk, although he often was shy about owning up to that. There's a wonderful, very short book called An Introduction to Rembrandt, which is absolutely terrific piece of popular writing. So it is a glorious thing, but we we started completely afresh and we, we couldn't, you know, he had 13 programs to do the legacy of antiquity up through the end of the 19th century. We had nine to do, China, India, and so on. So the only way it, that project would survive is by each of us being very thematically driven. Some of us are more faithful to a kind of basic chronological spine, as you'll have noticed. Me, I think, and, and David rather more than Mary, but we, we all were quite clear that we had to take an argument without it turning into some sort of daunting A-level seminar for the viewers. Otherwise, the thing was completely impossible. But certainly on many, many shoots, one director in particular, director of, of programs four and five, the Landscape Program and the Triumph of Art, um, we would say to ourselves, was what we did just worthy of, you know, son of Clark, as it were, actually? And... It was extraordinary how that happened. If we felt we'd framed something clumsily or we'd not given a work of art enough time to breathe, as in the famous slang of the trade, we would do it over again, actually, because even though we weren't seeking to imitate that style, you, you absolutely can't now. Um, we wanted it to be of that quality of uh, concentrated power, visual power. I also asked Simon for his thoughts on why art has been so important to many cultures over the course of history. There, the, uh, the evidence of Ice Age is extraordinarily moving. The, you know, to see actually the transcription of, as I call it, kind of memory art from 25 to 30,000 years ago, we don't really know when what we would understand as language, spoken language, much less written language. We know when written language sort of starts, you know, it's quite much later on with the arrival of, you know, hieroglyphs and Akkadian and eventually linear B and linear A. But we don't really know when spoken language starts, but it's quite evident that the sort of sense of communicating with other people and communicating with people beyond your own lifetime starts very early. So 
any definition of actually what makes Homo sapiens, as it were, presupposes an extraordinary piece of wiring for meaning-loaded visions, really, whether they're religious visions, ritualized visions, communicated visions, or simply visions of the natural habitat in which you live. They happen very, very early on. So, of course, actually, the relative importance or hatred for... Mary has a big chunk of a film about the hatred of images, which she sort of takes seriously in her stuff about iconoclasm. So, either way, it's as important as counting and spoken communication. And it's not, we all agree, it's that, that kind of sense of what you produce in the visual arts or what you produce in architecture isn't a kind of add-on thing. It's something to which people respond. And, you know, whether or not we're living, I certainly hope not, at the beginning of the end of the written book, you know, sort of so much of our lives are spent responding to a kind of storm of images all the time. So I suppose actually one thing which is a flows over from the original series to ours is that just like we have what 90% junk genes in our you know DNA there's 90% junk images I think actually traveling around the world so we want to restore the priority of the 10% that matter I mean I've always felt that I'll, I'll just go back so it is a kind of BBC history magazine forgive the presumption of saying that I mean I remember you know when I thought okay you really do have to become a proper art historian, which I, I took a year off to read mostly German, ferocious Kunstwissenschaft, philosophy of art, literature, starting, that was no fun, with Hegel, and Kant, which was a lot more fun, and um, which shows you how nerdy I was all those years back in, uh, in, the, in the 70s. But I remember looking back on my very first book on Patriots and Liberators, which is about what the Dutch went through in the period of the French Revolution, and thinking, my God, you know, there was a whole enormous corpus of satirical prints, rather the kind of Gilray sort. And of course, the Dutch invent political prints for the world, really, before, before we do in, in Britain. And I thought, why didn't I do that? And the answer is that, oh, well, somehow images, even if they were images festooned with polemical texts, weren't, quote, hardcore evidence. Well, of course, they were. So I thought, well, you idiot, you know, really. And then when I decided to do what became the embarrassment of riches, you know, kind of almost... Um, anthropology of daily life, that's how I thought about it. Well, I thought, well, you know, the Dutch, of all people, despite the fact of the Protestant Reformation, are kind of drowning in images. And that's when I said, okay, um, enough of this kind of amateurishness about taking images as a kind of text, seriously, you know, train yourself properly, albeit belatedly, to be, as it were, a hardcore art historian. And, you know, I migrated to Harvard because... I actually taught art history there, and I'm, I've been in an art history department at Columbia for the last 25 years. So, so I've always felt historians who actually didn't train themselves, it doesn't have to be formal training, but who don't take on board the weight of images as absolutely as serious as texts, charters, documents, letters, diaries, are only delivering a, a, a portion of the past. I, I do also think the same is true, but that's less actually contentious, that artists, art historians who imagine the world of images living on planet Kunst, you know, are equally mistaken. But most, most art historians nowadays almost strangle images in historical context, so that's less of a problem.
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I then asked Simon to describe some of his favourite pieces that appear in the series. Partly because they are so inexplicable, I do love those extraordinary bronze masks from Sanching Dui from about 2,000 years BC, um, because they seem to land from, you know, the planet Tharg or somewhere. And they are like absolutely, you know, I love weird surprises in the history of art. There was a great struggle. They were, they were I should explain um, for the History Magazine that um, in 1985, 1986, this extraordinary grave was found in Sichuan, not far from Chengdu, full of, I think, a hundred elephant tusks. It was clear the elephants, ghastly thought, had been sacrificed, but also full of these extraordinary bronze sculptures. And the bronze sculptures, including what we didn't shoot, it was kind of, there's a weird tree with birds hanging from it, and there's kind of nine-foot man with enormous feet. Um, but mostly it's full of these masks with, with hugely exaggerated ears and protruding eyeballs. And for a long time, Chinese art history struggled to say, well, they, they're the same somehow as Qing, the earliest dynastic uh, bronze work in Chinese art proper. And the metallurgical casting process is indeed the same as further down the Yangtze River, but they look nothing like anything. And the Chinese have given up saying, so th- this is something that happens in China, but is and a very, very, very dramatic. I mean, they're, they're astonishing things. Some of them are covered in gold and I, I knew about them, but um, again, when you go and stand amongst them, really something weirdly physical, you know, happens inside you. I also, I also love the, in the program called Radiance, about colour and, and spirituality. This is something very... Uh, terrible act of temerity that Kenneth Clark had tried to film is the fresco ceiling at the bishop's residence at Würzburg in South Germany. And he talks a little bit about it. He does wonderful number on the Rococo Catholic churches in South Germany. But it was clear they didn't quite have, in 1968, the technology to do what Tiablo, the Tiablo father and son, wanted to do, which was, as you go up this enormous Baroque staircase, the figures literally, like kind of stop motion, move around you. I should explain that it's a sort of double-layered fresco with a boring Baroque title, Apollo and the Four Continents. And Apollo is up in swimming around in kind of a peachy sun glow up there with Venus tarting around, as Venus will do. And then down below on the kind of balustraded top floor are the four continents. But they wear some of their allegorical dress, but it's full of actual real people trading in swag. It's heaving with camels and elephants and dogs and musicians. And it's just an extraordinary kind of circus of all of humanity. And because we were able, we had this whacking great kind of blitzkrieg German jib about as, I don't know how many metres long it was the biggest jib I've ever worked with and and very, very 
slinkily, I use that word like the, the toy almost, articulated, we could travel the camera smoothly up the staircase and then turn it upside down and move sideways. And this was so thrilling. It was a terrible case of so the technology making the presenter look, experience the art all over again. So that's something I kind of lock in my heart. And um, it was also wonderful, I think... Um, at the very end of that same film ends with us being in Matisse's Rosary Chapel in Vance, which I've been to a long time ago, but it was one of those radiant September mornings where the sun is your friend. And it's so simple, but it sums up this extraordinary sense that Matisse had at the very end of his life of wanting to be religious in a very unorthodox, almost pantheistic way and just deliver a a tiny building as a kind of hymn to the happiness of being alive and creation. There was one moment where we looked at the altar, which is made of some gorgeous stone. Matisse designs absolutely everything in it. And you notice there's a, there are little cockle shells, there are little shells in it. And you're not far from the Mediterranean. And you thought, suddenly got that, that he's trying to give a sense of the antiquity of you know, geological creation. And that was just a tiny detail. And I just really just was complete warm puddle on the floor at that point, you know. I went on to ask Simon about his views on the importance of art in the modern world. Well, I think it's incredibly important because, um, in two senses, because, you know, as it were, let's say the world is run by photoshopping, that, you know, because art actually can determine who is elected, who is not elected, where power lies, do we feel happy, do we feel very unhappy? It shouldn't be the case, but very often, screeds of text about all those very important things, people tune out, they just simply tune out. It's too much like homework really whereas powerful compelling images you know it shouldn't be the case that we determine our lives through youtube or instagram um but a lot of a lot of tasks happen like that so when as in the last program a large part of the program is is taken with um contemporary artists now Two of them Chinese, actually. Seke Weiwei, for example, a very famous contemporary artist who's been long been in a kind of rather contentious relationship with his own government, to put it mildly. Um, but he's become a kind of citizen, self-described citizen of the world. And he's he he really, you know, modernism, we think about it as kind of pretty patterns and so on in the, in the case of Mondrian. But modernism by which I mean early 20th century modern art, did have this moral mission. It felt that all the grand machines of storytelling were meretricious. They were kind of stuff which, for better or worse, the bourgeoisie hung over the you know, mantelpiece, really. And they wanted art to do something more, you know, morally charged in a way. And some of those contemporary artists have gone back to that. And we filmed something called The Lord of the Journey, which was a kind of, I know, 100-metre-long rubber raft hanging from the ceiling to the floor full of 268 blow-up figures who represent refugees and this, again this sounds almost cringingly sententious but it's immensely immensely moving and that's a good example of a kind of engaged artist an extreme example possibly um, but the, the trick is actually to make art which can have this if, if you want polemical charge but it's still having the kind of complicated delivery of what we see what we feel and what we think compressed into it finally 
I asked Simon what he hoped the legacy of the series would be. Well, I do hope, I don't know, 300,000 people are going to queue around the block to hear. They might for Mary, but I suspect not for me. But, um, <laughs> but I, what we do hope is, uh, as I said, without being kind of writing a sort of op-ed piece in a liberal newspaper, uh, we do hope the kind of connectedness of human creativity. If, you know, it would be a wonderful thing if um, history, as well as art history, um, was taught with many cultures who were producing what they produced in play at the same time. That would be, you know, a good thing to do because, you know, you and I know we're living at a time of intensified paranoia and mutual suspicion and walls and fences and rhetoric going up from the channel to the American-Mexican border. And this is a truly awful thing, I think. I mean, I'm completely unrepentant about that. So that was Simon Sharma. To read the full article, check out the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now with the Biotapestry on the cover. Civilizations begins today, the 1st of March, at 9pm on BBC Two. And the intention is for all nine episodes to be available on BBC iPlayer soon after the first one has been broadcast. OK, well, that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Monday to find out about a fascinating female composer who lived through the Soviet era. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.